I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here and this season takes it to a whole new level old school legends modern power players and ex-lovers are all competing in cape town south africa for the prize of three hundred thousand dollars and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast listen to mtv's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts countdown with keith olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. One of these judges is going to have to jail Trump for contempt of court. I don't care about the consequences. I don't care if it energizes his base. I don't care if there's a conflict with his secret service. I don't care if his cult riots in the street. At some point, somebody in the legal system has to reassert the simple fact that the law applies to this bastard, too. And that if you did what he does, not the 20th time he does it, not the 21st time, not the 22nd time, but the first time, if you did what he did the first time he did it, you would spend at least the night in jail. Trump has come to the courtroom in the damages phase of his trial for defaming E. Jean Carroll a second time and during testimony muttered and mumbled like a jerk talking over the dialogue at a play or a movie, his senile dementia dribbling out of all four corners of his square head. Judge Kaplan responds to Trump saying con job and witch hunt loudly enough for jurors to hear during the testimony. Quote, Mr. Trump, I hope I don't have to consider excluding you from the trial. Trump throws his hands up in the air, possibly because the judge addressed him just as Mr. And God bless this judge for doing that. And he answers, I would love it. The judge, quote, I understand you're probably very eager for me to do that because you just can't control yourself in these circumstances. Find him in contempt, detain him, or at least threaten him with detention. There have to be consequences for this man's increasing and increasingly dangerous abuses of our legal system. I have spent the entirety of my life doubting our legal system, but I have 10 billion times more confidence in it than I have in this fat psychopath Trump. He has already been found guilty of sexually abusing this woman. 
He has already been found guilty of then defaming this woman. And while his idiot parking lot lawyer disproves her own assertion that she can fake being smart and he should hold her in contempt too, and she brings up the irrelevancy of whether or not E. Jean Carroll inherited a gun from her own late father, and the judge shuts that down, and she fails in Trump's favorite gambit that some kind of mysterious evidence exonerating him has been destroyed, Trump's social media spews out attack after attack on Judge Kaplan, on the system, on his victim, E. Jean Carroll, and on the guy he now says is the mastermind of all this, George Conway. George Conway? There were 22 posts about this case defaming everybody involved in it just on Tuesday and just as it was in progress. There is a legal system in this country, and it is desperately flawed, and yet at some point it has to assert itself and kick this Trump in the balls. Because otherwise, Trump gets to hold news conferences afterwards and take the things that failed, that the judge ruled out of order, that the judge warned him about, and warned that bubblehead Alina Habba about, and act as if they are to use the favorite phrase of a putrid old old man buried under bronzer and suffering a prolonged mental health crisis that threatens the future of this nation, what he calls a Perry Mason moment. Well, they found out today that she got rid of a lot of evidence, as you probably noticed. She got rid of massive amounts of evidence. And in addition to that, she had a rifle or a gun uh, because she said she bought gun bullets or rifle bullets. And it was the opposite, I guess, of her gun. And uh, was it licensed? No, it wasn't licensed. So I guess she's got a difficult problem. That's going to be her problem. But she has a gun or a, or a rifle. She didn't really explain which. She might have both. What the F are rifle bullets, old man? There is considerable speculation among those following this case that the likeliest result of all this will be that the damages awarded to E. Jean Carroll will be astronomically high, like rivaling or even eclipsing the $148 million award against Giuliani in the case of Shamos and Ruby Freeman. I mean, just there in that clip, he defamed E. Jean Carroll again. She can sue him again. So say the jury is as ticked off as the judge is and literally awards her half a billion dollars of Trump's money. And then, so what? Trump has wasted his one time on this earth perfecting loopholes and appeals and legal escape hatches. He will stall and delay and manipulate and pervert. And if he regains power, he will find some manufactured way out of paying her a dime. The action that is required now is jail time. 12 hours, 24 hours, 250 years, whatever you can get away with. This creature no longer responds as a human being would to anything that might restrain him. There exists no simple nor measured solution to the threat he poses to the, forgive the cornball here, the threat he poses to the American way of life. He is not lashing out merely at Judge Kaplan or Judge Engeron or Judge Chutkin or E. Jean Carroll or Jack Smith or Letitia James or any individual. He is lashing out at the United States of America and the laws under which the rest of us must live. 
and it is time that those who are charged with enforcing those laws and punishing the breaking of those laws to teach this asshole one mighty lesson that will shut him up, shut him up in both senses of the phrase. Judge Kaplan, he's in your courtroom. He is in contempt of you and the law and the country and reality. Show him and his cult, and most importantly, those of us who still believe in this country and believe in the rules, show us that the law and the country and reality are not at the mercy of one fat, deranged old man. He is in contempt. Now put him in jail. Meanwhile, in Maine, a symbolically but not practically important ruling on Trump's ineligibility under the 14th Amendment. State law there requires the Maine Secretary of State to rule on ballot eligibility before the courts do, but now a state superior court has overthrown that law. The justice has ruled that Secretary of State Shannon Bellows cannot take Trump off the ballot in Maine until the Supreme Court of the United States rules on the disqualification clause. The secretary confronted an uncertain legal landscape, writes Justice Murphy, incorrectly. She, quote, should be afforded the opportunity to assess the effect and application of her ruling based on how the Supreme Court rules on the Colorado 14th case. It's nonsense. It's weak-kneed, meddlesome, both-sidesist, dilettantish nonsense. On the other hand, we have what might be the first murmurs about the elephant in the 14th Amendment room, or more correctly, the elephants. The 14th Amendment has not been acknowledged in any previous case of ineligibility for the presidency, but it has been used without hesitation or confusion against candidates for the House and Senate and those already elected to those offices. The 14th Amendment disqualifies Barry Loudermilk of Georgia, your genial tour guide to the Capitol. The 14th disqualifies Clay Higgins and his insistence on the record in the House about ghost buses, whatever the hell he thinks ghost buses are. It disqualifies the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, and the amicus brief to hold up the certification and all those who signed it. It disqualifies Congressman Scott Perry and Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene and Andy Biggs and Lauren Boebert and Josh Hawley and Ron Johnson and Paul Gosar and countless others. And most immediately, the 14th Amendment disqualifies Elise Stefanik who just joined Trump in calling the convicted violent perpetrators of the insurrection, quote, hostages, unquote. And while we have not yet seen anybody act to defend the Constitution in this specific regard, somebody finally spoke up and did something about the larger issue of Elise Stefanik on the House floor yesterday. Congressman Dan Goldman, 10th District, State of New York. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I rise today to introduce a resolution to censure Congresswoman Elise Stefanik for providing aid, comfort, and support to the rioters and insurrectionists who violently attacked this Capitol on January 6, 2021, in an effort to undermine our democracy and illegally stop the peaceful transfer of power. 
Since that attempted coup, Ms. Stefanik has repeatedly and persistently expressed support for the duly convicted insurrectionists. Last week, echoing the inflammatory language of criminal defendant Donald Trump, Ms. Stefanik disgracefully referred to the January 6 insurrectionists in prison as, quote, hostages, unquote. Ms. Stefanik's support of convicted criminals charged with offenses against the United States government, including attempted violence against members of this body, is simply unacceptable from a member of Congress. Nor is it acceptable for a member of Congress who purports to oppose anti-Semitism to equate convicted insurrectionists with the more than 130 Israeli hostages who remain subject to horrific conditions in Gaza. She therefore must be censured. I yield back. That, of course, should be the starting point. The 14th Amendment has no expiration date on it. It has no statute of limitations. Quote, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress who shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution of the United States or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. And going on national television and calling those convicted of trying to break into the Capitol and stop the certification of the presidential election hostages, that would be the definition of giving aid and comfort to the enemies of the United States. And Elise Stefanik is therefore not eligible to serve in Congress. Remove her from the 2024 ballot in New York state and let's get this started. Begin the process of expelling her and the others who have been disloyal to this country and given aid and comfort to the enemies thereof. Back briefly to yesterday's topic and the inability of our inflexible, unthinking coterie of dilettantes who call themselves our political reporters to realize that if 49 percent of the participants in a presidential primary vote against the winner, He may still be the winner, but he sure as hell didn't crush his opponents or anything else, except maybe he crushed some Adderall. Finally, finally, some of the major news organizations did some of the reporting they should have done in the immediate wake of Monday's vote in Iowa. The key numbers, 51 to 49 is not a landslide, and Trump, yes, beating Trump, no, by just 2,222 votes. That should have been the headline. Having failed to make that the headline, there is a series of interior numbers, and places like Politico finally noticed. But these don't look at all like a Trump crush. Hey, what happened? From Politico yesterday, he showed striking weakness in suburban and urban areas. In more than three dozen precincts in the suburbs, Trump received less than a quarter of the vote, even while achieving blowout wins of 90-plus percent of votes cast in a similar number of rural precincts. It also reveals his relative vulnerability among suburban and highly educated voters, raising questions about how he will win over a voting bloc that has long viewed him with skepticism, and helped fuel his 2020 loss. Well, look at that. It's not what he asked for, but the tin man has gotten a brain. Charlie Sykes from TheBulwark.com, who I never mean to include among the dilettante pundits, did the kind of work your average TV commentator or writer at Politico would never think to try, work that involved logic and a calculator. 
The low turnout Monday in Iowa had many reasons, mostly the real field temps as low as 30 below, fine, valid, but whatever their cause, Sykes notes it means that Trump's vote total Monday comprised only 8% of all the Republicans just in Iowa. It's not a landslide if you've gotten 8% of your own party's voters to vote for you. Sykes also hit the entrance and exit polling in Iowa. A quarter of those Iowa Republicans who did go to the caucuses said they will not vote for Trump in November. That's not if he's convicted or if he's dead. That's right now. They won't vote for this Trump in November. If he's convicted, the no way number jumps from 25% to 31%. And by the way, if 31% of Republicans across the country will not vote for a convicted Trump, he's going to lose in a landslide. And nearly half of Haley's backers in Iowa say they would vote not for Trump, but for Joe Biden. There are no indications from Iowa that Trump will be denied the nomination, innocent or guilty, dead or alive. But there are also no indications that Iowa proved that Trump is even as strong as he was in 2020 or 2016, let alone somehow stronger, which seems to be the headline everybody had printed. Oh, by the way, New Hampshire, Tuesday, where Nikki Haley is now up to 38% in new polling, Ron DeSantis is headed to South Carolina this weekend. Ron DeSantis just punted New Hampshire. Also of interest here, yes, I saw. Trump has three or four bright red marks on his right hand, one on the thumb, one on the forefinger, one or two on the upper palm, and yes, I saw James Carville has speculated they are not cuts or bruises, but sores, sores consistent with the secondary stage of syphilis. No, I don't think they are syphilis. Although I'll respect Mr. Carville's knowledge of the subject. I don't think there's syphilis, in large part because the photos of Trump from Tuesday show no red marks on his right hand, and I don't think they would burst into full vivid color overnight. I'm not a doctor. I just play one on podcasts. But the marks are consistent with an old guy slipping on the ice in Iowa, in New Hampshire, the ice in New York, for that matter during his news conference, for that matter, and grabbing something to support himself or stop himself from face-planting, the campaign should explain what the marks are. Actually, I will be very disappointed if Trump and his campaign do not claim the marks are stigmata. Stigmata, perhaps, from Trump's holy anger that MSNBC and CNN did not worship him sufficiently after Iowa. He wants to have their licenses revoked, even though they don't have licenses. And for once, I'm going to defend Trump, sort of. His belief that he can bully MSNBC and NBC News into better coverage is based on the fact that the Republican Party has already bullied MSNBC and NBC News into better coverage, thanks to the interventions of Tom Brokaw, and I was there when they did. 
That story next. This is an all-new edition of Countdown. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Countdown with Keith Elberman. Postscripts to the news, some headlines, some updates, some snark, some predictions. Dateline, the Supreme Court. Uh, Here we go. The 14th Amendment and presidential immunity cases are the obvious ones where the Supreme Court can turn this nation into Weimar Republic 2.0. But there's another subtler one that could basically bar all environmental protection regulations and business regulations and, you know... Anything that keeps the rapacious among us from rapaciousing. The court heard arguments yesterday about a repeal of the now 40-year-old Chevron decision, which says that if regulatory statutes are ambiguous, judges have to defer to the regulatory agency's interpretations of those statutes. 
Supreme Court watchers said the six members of the Republican Supreme Religious Court seemed skeptical of Chevron and seemed willing to kill it, and with it, the legal basis for most government regulations. When the Solicitor General, arguing to keep it, said it would be an unwarranted shock to the legal system to remove it, Justice Fratboy M. Kavanaugh belched that there were, quote, shocks to the system every four or eight years when a new administration comes in, whether it's communications law or securities law or competition law or environmental law. He doesn't like laws. Once again, we approach the point at which we will have to decide whether to continue to let this illegally packed court push us back towards the year 1885 or to draw a line in the sand and say, hey, nice ruling, boys, and how are you going to enforce it? Are you sending Clarence over in his RV with brass knuckles? Dateline Capitol Hill. Marjorie Taylor Greene providing the comic relief yet again. Barney Rubble's stunt double at a committee hearing setting herself up one more time. I just traveled in airports across the country just the past few days. You know what I saw in our airports? Based on Marge's role pursuing Hunter Biden, I'm going to say the answer is dick pics. Migrants, illegal aliens all over in the airports. Damn it. Well, were, were, were the migrants carrying dick pics? Well, did you ask? Did you ask to see their papers? You didn't, since you'd have no legal right to do that? Then, uh, how do you know they were undocumented, Marge? Thank you, Nancy Faust. on this all-new edition of Countdown, the Republican presidential candidate threatening MSNBC... The right wing reacting hysterically as usual to what the network showed or did not show? You mean that Trump story from this week? No, sir. September 2008, when goons working for or on behalf of John McCain blackmailed Tom Brokaw into going into his bosses and demanding that Chris Matthews and I be fired from presidential debate coverage or their guy would not show up to the debate. 15 years plus later, and it still shocks me. And it still costs them $22 million, which I still have. Things I promised not to tell coming up. First time for the Daily Roundup of the Miscreants, Morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. LeBron's worst. The new president of Argentina, Wolverine. I'm sorry, his name is Javier Millet. He just looks like... Wolverine because of that haircut. They let this nutball talk at the World Economic Forum in Davos, and he blamed basically all of the world's problems on equality for women. Quoting Wolver uh, Mille, 
All that this radical feminism agenda has led to is greater state intervention to hinder the economic process, giving a job to bureaucrats who have not contributed anything to society, examples, ministries of work of women or international organizations devoted to promoting this agenda. Another conflict presented by socialists is that of humans against nature, claiming that we human beings damage the planet, which should be protected at all costs, even going as far as advocating for population control mechanisms or the blood bloody abortion agenda, unquote. Congratulations, Argentina. Your new president is actually dumber than he looks. The runner-up, worser, the Babylon Bee, which is a right-wing humor website. And there is the ultimate oxymoron. Sure is right-wing, and it sure has absolutely no humor in it, nor any sense of propriety or timing the same day Vivek Ramaswamy drops out of the GOP race and reiterates that there's no racism and endorses Trump, the Babylon Bee, which thinks it's the onion, except, you know, the onion without any jokes in it, posts a piece headlined, Trump promises Vivek an administration position running the White House 7-Eleven. The saddest part of that is not that it's racist or that it's not funny, but that some percentage of Trump's cult will think that's an actual news story. But our winner, the worst, Ben Carson. You remember Ben Carson, the brain surgeon who ran for president, and the only thing he got out of it was a job in the Trump admin running housing and urban development? and proving to the world that to be a brain surgeon, you do not have to have your own brain. For some reason, CNN has interviewed Ben Carson about Trump's promise to round up migrants and keep them in concentration camps, although the CNN host was nice enough to defer to Trump and the Republicans and called them internment camps. Carson emphasized in response that the goal was to keep migrants from coming here in the first place, and again, that by itself is laugh-out-loud funny. There is political cap collapse driven by climate change underway already right now, and that ain't stopping anytime soon, so good luck getting them to stay there and fry rather than coming here and take their chances. But then Ben Carson said something so Ben Carson in that sedated, man, I hope he's brighter than that when he operates way of his, Carson was asked if he would support Trump's decision to open the camps, and he actually replied, quote, Well, they have to have some place to stay, unquote. Ben, is that also your answer when they ask you about slaves on the plantations in this country in the 18th and 19th centuries? Carson, they have to have some place to stay. Today's worst person in the world! The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. 
basically everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Just ahead, Trump demanding MSNBC should lose its license, even though it doesn't have a license, for not televising his latest victory speech. It's actually not something he invented. The Republicans have been doing stuff like this to MSNBC since 2008 and sadly getting away with it. Things I promise not to tell next. First time for another dog in need. You can help. Every dog has its day. And we go to Anson County, North Carolina, and a puppy they have called Sweet Cheeks. 17 weeks old, a beautiful white and tan dog found abandoned and paralyzed on the side of a road there, literally left to die, probably after being beaten by a human. Only by accident was he found before another animal or exposure killed him. This is a lot of money that might not get the result we want, but we have to try. They want to try to get him the definition of innocence betrayed by humans to get him back the use of his legs. This means treating his injuries and then seeing if surgery might get him back the use of his legs. My friends at Hounds in Pounds are fundraising for him. They're going for $4,000. You can find Sweet Cheeks at givinggrid.com, and I'll tweet him out too. Your donations can help, and so also can your reposts. Sweet Cheeks thanks you, and I thank you. Number one story on the countdown and things I promised not to tell. And the right wing went nuts over MSNBC and CNN not showing all of Trump's self-congratulatory speech from Iowa Monday night and Hannity attacking Maddow and Trump insisting that their licenses should be taken away, confirming he's either crazy or stupid because, of course, they don't have licenses. 
Although this does portend what he will try to do if he seizes power, his intent to punish news outlets, not just for criticizing him, but for not praising him enough. And boy, did this flash me back. Because this happened to me. At MSNBC in 2008, courtesy the supposed sane Republicans who preceded these insane Republicans, and it underscores that there never really have been sane Republicans, and they have always longed to dictate to the media what it can and cannot say about them, and thanks to people like Tom Brokaw, they often get away with it. Chris Matthews and I were co-anchoring the Republican convention on MSNBC in 2008. He was there at the convention in Minnesota. I was in the studios at 30 Rock in New York, ostensibly, so I could also anchor hurricane coverage, though it was pretty clear that at least half the reason I was not in Minneapolis was because the Republicans had threatened NBC or said they could not guarantee my safety there or something like that. So I was the one on September 2nd, 2008, who had to throw it to a video that we had been told by the Republicans was a tribute to the dead of 9-11 that they were playing in the theater in their convention in Minnesota. It was not a tribute. It was a snuff film. All of the images that the networks had stopped showing of 9-11 within weeks or even days of the attacks, all of them were in this snuff film. People jumping falling to their deaths from the World Trade Center, endless replays of the planes hitting the towers, dismembered bodies in the plaza, the building collapses, the equally terrifying scenes at the Pentagon, and all with the grotesque voiceover from that fink Robert Davi emphasizing that this was all the Democrats' fault. The message was, they might as well have phrased it this way, elect Obama and you will die and you will die like this. I was angry just on that base level. For that five and a half years I had been back at MSNBC, we had been rigorous about not showing any of that video that the Republicans had just forced upon us by lying to us about it. There were rules that if we had to, for some reason, sneed some snippet, we would show only still images, and even then only with extensive warnings to the viewers. But I knew from my conversations with the president of MSNBC, Phil Griffin, who I had known for 28 years at that point, that he would insist that on the scene in Minneapolis, Matthews and Tom Brokaw, whose career at NBC I had resuscitated after Brian Williams had buried him alive two years earlier, I knew from what Griffin told me that one or both of them would rebuke the GOP for showing not a 9-11 tribute, but as I just said, a 9-11 snuff film. The snuff film ended. We came out to Brokaw and Matthews, and Brokaw kind of coughed, and Matthews said, well... And he turned to Brokaw and said in that loose fire hose delivery he had, Tom, it kind of underscores terrorism, big thing for Republicans, they try to stop Obama. Brokaw droned on approvingly. The Republicans sneaking a snuff film, a banned video, onto MSNBC, and by the way, also onto CNN, onto NBC proper, onto CBS, onto ABC without any warning. That was not mentioned. Back to New York and Keith. I was supposed to ad-lib a tease about what we were expecting from the Republican convention for the rest of the night and then throw to a commercial. Instead, I said, and this is a paraphrase, the original tape disappeared that night, that before we moved on, I felt I needed to apologize. That we at MSNBC, and for that matter at NBC News, had extremely strict rules about not showing the video 
The Republicans had just shown you via our network without any warning, without any context, and by lying to us. And we certainly would not have shown the horror and death and blamed it on the Democrats, or for that matter, on the Republicans. I said if we had done such a thing ourselves, there would have been people fired. The public program the GOP provided said that was going to be a 9-11 tribute film, I said, and so did the private conversations with the network, which included the reminder from NBC and MSNBC that we had rules against showing the scenes of horrible death and mutilation and destruction. So I apologized on behalf of whoever trusted the Republicans to live up to their word that MSNBC viewers were forced to see the video our network had promised never to show them. So three nights later, without as much as an email to me, this Griffin had called my agent and told her I was fired and Matthews too from our coverage of the upcoming McCain-Obama debates. I happened to be off that night in the press box watching a Mets-Phillies game at Shea Stadium, so she had to relate these details to me by phone as I walked down the many ramps in the stadium's bowels and headed towards the subway. I told her to call Griffin back and tell him I was quitting on the spot right then, and he could work his way out of the ensuing disaster by himself. Liberal Network MSNBC fires liberal host Alderman for criticizing conservatives for sneaking 9-11 snuff film onto MSNBC. He could work his way out of that disaster any way he chose, and then he could wait for my response on Good Morning America, CBS This Morning, the PBS NewsHour, any other news program that bothered to ask, and in court. I made a few phone calls to friendly voices within the NBC management structure, got from them a clearer picture of what had happened, and despite the spotty cell service along the elevated train line heading back into Manhattan, I got a message from a newspaper reporter friend who neatly tied together all that I was hearing elsewhere. Tom Brokaw is going around NBC saying he got you fired from the debates because the Republicans told him to. Nine, maybe ten months earlier, the same Phil Griffin had come to me and asked me if I would be okay with Brokaw appearing during our weekly coverage of the Democratic and Republican primaries. Just a couple of minutes, buddy, like from a, a perspective desk. That's all he wants to do. He's so unhappy. Brian Williams has frozen him out of everything. I was appalled, but not surprised. The power had gone to Brian's head. And of course, there, it had not met very much resistance. Plus, as I said to Griffin, you're asking me if I'd like to add Tom Brokaw's experience and Tom Brokaw's gravitas to stuff I'm anchoring when I'm not sure I know as much as I really know to do this the right way? Tom, to be fair, fit in beautifully and twice. After those long Tuesday evenings during the primaries, he sent me brief emails awarding me what he called the game ball because he was so impressed by my ability to balance the roles of political anchor and political commentator. Having tried this myself, he wrote, I know what a perilous tightrope this is. Game ball to KO. I mock them now, but they meant so much to me then that I printed them out and carried them in my wallet until September. And now Brokaw had gotten me fired because, as my newspaper friend said, the Republicans told him to. Well, that wasn't hard to unpack either. Tim Russert had died on the 3rd of June that year. I anchored that night until 2 in the morning. It was still an open wound. There were still tears. 
We didn't know it then, but the structure of NBC News and the perilous tightrope balancing NBC and MSNBC had died with Tim Russert. So did the role of moderator of the second debate between John McCain and Barack Obama, scheduled for about a month from my subway ride on October 7, 2008, in Nashville. Tim had not even been buried yet when Brokaw began to angle to get that assignment that was now vacant, along with brushing away the dirt of his penny-ante role on the MSNBC perspective desk, leaving us in the lurch in order to take over Tim's spot as Brian's sage sidekick on Big NBC. The month before, August, there had been a story coming out of the east end of the third floor at 30 Rock where NBC News managers sat around not doing much of anything, that a Republican goon named Ed Gillespie had been in there with Griffin and the idiot NBC News president Steve Kappas trying to get me silenced or fired or off the convention coverage or something, and that somebody prominent from NBC News was in there with Gillespie or was invoked by Gillespie, the rumor mill was not confident in who it was or what exactly they were doing. That Friday night in September 2008, as I switched from the Elevated 7 train to the Underground F, the whole thing came together. Before my comments about the GOP convention 9-11 snuff film, Gillespie had come in and had somehow vaguely threatened Kappas and Griffin about me, using as leverage the debate which Tom Brokaw was now supposed to moderate, the one that had been Russert's. And when I apologized for their snuff video on our air, Gillespie must have turned it into an either-or. Get rid of me, or McCain would refuse to participate in any debate moderated by Brokaw. Tom Brokaw had already come back from the dead once in 2008. I had made that happen, and he would be damned if he would be forced to do it a second time. But as the train took me home to an apartment I was now going to have to sell since I had quit MSNBC on the spot for folding to such obvious blackmail, something else now occurred to me. Why would MSNBC or NBC or our parent corporation GE actually think that they could remove me from the debate coverage on MSNBC, where the Rachel Maddow show had not yet been born and was only going to premiere the next week, and the three times a night my show ran accounted for something like 60% of the entire day's network audience and all of its profits, how did they think they were going to get away with that without a really bad reaction from our audience? Plus, if a newspaper man already knew the Brokaw part, how could this story be avoided? Something like this. MSNBC has announced it had removed its liberal star Keith Ulrich from coverage of the McCain-Obama presidential debates. Sources confirmed former NBC News anchorman Tom Brokaw, now an MSNBC commentator, had helped the Republican Party to blackmail NBC into the decision. Olderman immediately resigned, saying, quote, In succumbing to this coercion on behalf of John McCain, NBC has now forfeited any further right to be called a news organization, and I'm sad to say MSNBC, which I built, is now dead. At that point, it dawned on me that the only thing that could save the credibility of the whole NBC News division and the careers of Griffin and Kappas and NBC Network President Jeff Zucker and especially Tom Brokaw was for me to publicly state, to lie, that I had asked to be removed from anchoring the debates because the the whatever was just too much blah, blah, blah for me and I felt I should just stick to the post-debate analysis and commentary and blah, 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 blah. 
In short, they would have a choice. They could fire me from the debates and destroy everything, including the $100 million a year or so in profits NBC was suddenly making off MSNBC after years of losing about that much. Or I could lie and claim it was my idea and I could save everybody's ass and their money, including my own. I got out of the subway and raced home. I called my agent. I explained it to her. I'm not quitting. In fact, I'm going to get a huge raise. Listen carefully. You call Griffin back and explain to him, I will now personally save his job even though he doesn't deserve it. And Kappas's and Zucker's and Brokaw's and everybody else's. I'll take the fall. Instead of letting them get fired by the MSNBC audience, I'll say this was my idea and it will cost him only $12 million. Oh, and he has to leak the fact that it cost him $12 million. That's the deal. And she paused for a second and she said, hey, that's genius. It might not quite be 12, but I, I, I bet I get at least 9 million. On Sunday, several news organizations reported I had asked to be taken off the anchor desk for the debates. Two months and one week later, the New York Times wrote, quote, Keith Olbermann, the anchor of Countdown on MSNBC, has extended his contract through the next presidential election season, the network announced. Mr. Olbermann and MSNBC essentially tore up the four-year, $4 million a year contract they signed last year and replaced it with one worth about $7.5 million a year. So that was a $3.5 million raise for four years to a total of $14 million, except the new contract added two years to my old deal, so the raise was actually $22 million. All stories have punchlines. This punchline is about Brokaw. We would have gotten away with this. NBC would have gotten its money's worth for the $22 million in hush money it had to pay me because it had rolled over for Republican Party blackmail, except Brokaw couldn't keep his mouth shut. So proud was he of preserving his role as moderator of the October 7th debate that he had to explain in explicit detail how he went to his bosses at NBC News and threatened them on behalf of the GOP. I mean, on the record, he said this. September 29th, a lengthy and glowing Brokaw profile in the New York Times. Quote, Mr. Brokaw said that over the summer he'd, quote, advocated within the executive suite of NBC News to modify the anchor duties of the MSNBC hosts Keith Olbermann and Chris Matthews on election night and on nights where there were presidential debates. Mr. Brokaw said he had also conducted some shuttle diplomacy in recent weeks between NBC and the McCain campaign. His mission, he said, was to assure the candidates' aides that despite some negative on-air commentary by Mr. Olbermann in particular, Mr. McCain could still get a fair shake from NBC News, unquote. That was his mission? The hell that was his mission. Happily, Brokaw just could not resist boasting even further. The next sentence reads, quote, Mr. Brokaw said he had been told by a senior McCain aide, whom he did not name, that the campaign had been reluctant to accept an NBC representative as one of the moderators of the three presidential debates until his name was invoked. One of the things I was told by this person was that they were so irritated, they said if it's an NBC moderator for any of these debates, we won't go, Mr. Brokaw said. My name came up and they said, oh, hell, we have to do it because it's going to be Brokaw. 
No insufferable person in all of broadcasting history has a better rep and a better and more undeserved rep than Tom Brokaw. So when a Trump leans on NBC management because the coverage that he got was not the coverage he wanted, don't think it won't have an effect. Because in 2008, they loved me then as they love Maddo now. But what they loved about each of us was... Not the truth we provided, but the money. There is a second punchline. After all this, when the new format came out, MSNBC had David Gregory, quote, anchor, unquote, the debate coverage. Practically all this meant was that I was on the air until 90 seconds before the debates began, which is when I said, now here's David Gregory. And he was on the air for four or five minutes after the debate ended, which is when he would then say, now here's Keith Olbermann. And on election night, with David officially the anchor of MSNBC's coverage at 10.59 p.m., he said, and bless him for this, with the last voting booth closing at 11 p.m., NBC News can now project the winner of the 2008 presidential election. Keith? Plus, that $22 million? I still have it. I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Countdown musical directors Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel arranged, produced, and performed most of our music. Mr. Ray was on guitars, bass, and drums. Mr. Chanel handled orchestration and keyboards. It was produced by TKO Brothers. Other music, including some of the Beethoven compositions, arranged and performed by No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2, written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Our satirical and pithy musical comments are by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was my friend John Dean, and everything else was pretty much my fault. So that's Countdown for this, the 295th day until the 2024 U.S. presidential election. See how the Republicans blackmail NBC between now and then. And the 1,108th day since Dementia J. Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Use the 14th Amendment, the Insurrection Act, and the justice system to stop him from doing it again while we still can. The next scheduled countdown is tomorrow. Bulletins as the news warrants. Till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. 
I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.